They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Bede Jemine, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 27 of Bede vs. The Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead, across all media. Now, before we get into the episode at hand, I just want to say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everyone who is listening, and I hope that you are all having a great holiday as we speak, and also you're having a great time as well. Another reason, before before we get into the episode, is that I want to give a bit of a shout-out to Trev F2F, who has left me a very nice review on the official podcast page on Apple Podcasts. And I did say before in previous episodes that if anyone has left me a review on any podcast streaming service, I will make sure to read it on the show. So I'm going to be doing that right now. And this is what Trev F2F says with his review, which he gives this show five stars, an undead good time. This is such a good idea for a Romero-based podcast. I'm actually kind of jealous. I didn't think of it myself. It's a lot of fun hearing everyone's Night of the Living Dead origins, especially since it's my favorite movie of all time. This also means I myself have enjoyed it, suffered through a lot of these offshoots myself, and I give Bean and his guests credit for crafting such an entertaining discussions around even the worst of them. Well, thank you very much, Trev F2F. I have a good feeling I know who exactly who you are, so... Once again, thank you so much for leaving that review. I really appreciate that, mate. And also for everyone out there, like I said before, uh, if you have been listening to the episode and have been enjoying it, leave a rating and review. And if you have left a review, I will read it in a future episode of this show. Now, with that out of the way, we'll get straight into the episode. And for this episode, I am joined by a reoccurring guest at this point who's making his I believe, eighth appearance on this show. You may already know who it is based on the amount of appearances he's been on, but I'm going to introduce him again anyway. And that, of course, is my good friend and as well as a contributor to supermarcy.com. And that is Marcus Wilturner. Hello, Marcus, and welcome back once again to the show. Do I hear eight? Thank you so much, B, for letting me come back on one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially before the year is out, Barkers. Let's uh that let's just say that. Because it would make sense to end this podcast out 
for 2023. If you didn't make one final guest appearance uh, for this year of the show. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, you keep putting out quality. You keep putting out just amazing episodes, movies that range from great to awful, but you still come in with the, with the great content, the, the, the great uh, executions, great presentations. You know, I just can't stay away. And you keep having me back on, man. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to come back on here as many times as possible because, you know, this is def- this is definitely my home podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I appreciate that, Marcus. It's always fun having you on the show to talk about movies. And I have put you through the rigor when it comes to <laughs> the quality of films I have talked about for the show but the fact that you have come back eight times now for the show kind of the <laughs> shows that you're willing to suffer with when it comes to <laughs> talking about these films i only kid about that for ladies and gentlemen but uh yeah so i'm glad that you're back and we have quite a film to talk about for this episode of the show it's a little indie film that i'm pretty sure most people have never even heard of before but it is intriguing enough to come on this show to be discussed. And that, of course, is the 2014 film, The Day of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, we're going to definitely get into it once again. And But this one is uh, definitely for the birds. This one's definitely for all the marbles. This one's definitely for all the cojones. This one is definitely an intriguing roller coaster. So. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I also saw what you did there, Marcus, with that first one with the birds. But uh <laughs> but you'll understand the reference what we once we get into the film. And uh but before I do, I haven't had a chance to say this to you, Marcus. How have you been going since you've last been on the show? <laughs> um <laughs> no, I've been I've been doing well. It's been a um a very busy, you know, two months. Uh and um, if I start talking about it now, we'll be here all day. But let's just mm-hmm. say it's been a very uh, emotional and, you know, like I said, busy two months. And I haven't really had time to really do too many things, but I can always, you know, uh, I always want to and I always will, you know, make time for this. Because, like I said, you know, coming back on here and doing this with you is always always a fun and entertaining and you know educational experience so like i said thank you so much for having me back on well i appreciate that marcus and we hope all things are all good uh, very soon on your end as well but we won't get into that because uh <laughs> that but <laughs> but that's something to talk about after the show but we might as well get but we might as well get straight to it and talk about the 2014 film the day of the living dead Baby's got a hold on me Baby's got a hold on me Baby's getting hot to breathe Cause baby's got a hold on me And I try so hard But I can't leave Cause baby's got a hold Dearest Thomas, I hope you understand why I've chosen to end my disintegrating life. 
could not watch myself get any more hideous, and I did not want you to see it too. I hope when you think of me, you see the beautiful woman that you married. You have been so wonderful, and I am grateful for the life that I had with you. I hope you were happy for me, because as you read this, I am no longer suffering. I love you, and one day I will see you again. which was written and directed by Thomas J. Churchill. And this film stars Natalie Victoria, Ray Kapurana, and if I butchered your last name, please forgive me, Kevin Eugene Franklin, Josh Haben, Brooke Lewis-Bellas, Janet Casey Keisler, Brian Andrews, Thomas J. Churchill, Sarah French, Stephen Jeffries, and James Duvall. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, and it is actually quite a long plot summary, but I'm just going to read a portion of it to kind of give you an idea of what this film is about. And that is as following. Set in Hollywood, 1957, George A. Lazarus is an insurance investigator who disappears during a routine claim. His heart-sick fiancée, Bethany, traces George's steps and discovers that the employees George was investigating so have all mysteriously disappeared. Now, as Beverly finds herself in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, this simple insurance fraud case may actually be the beginning of the end of the human race. Now, you're probably, re- after hearing that synopsis, you're probably thinking to yourself, how enough does this film have anything to do with Night of the Living Dead? Now, I have covered a previous homage to Night of the Living Dead on the previous episode, which of course was Flesh Eater. And that was a bit more blatant with how it homages the original 68 classic. This one does have its elements as well, but it also has its own identity. But the question is though, like how does this film work as a film, as a kind of homage to Night of the Living Dead all round? So Marcus, your thoughts on... The Day of the Living Dead. Well, I uh, I'm not gonna just I'm not gonna revert to just making noises this time around, but I am going to say that it is uh it's a uh it's a movie with scenes and things happening and uh, uh per- per- performances I-, I guess and you know, some blood and, you know, uh, some transitions and lighting and composition. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's as far as it is to me. But like, you know, it's uh, it's definitely a uh, an intriguing number that uh, will definitely bring about some discussion as we are about to do so. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I guess for me, and this is my thoughts on, over at least my initial thoughts of this film. I got to admit, I have heard about this film for a little while now in passing, especially kind of putting together the episode list for the show. But it was one of those films, like, even though it definitely has some elements that kind of, that are related to Night of the Living Dead, and even homages the film in certain ways, and even making making some references 
as well. It's not a full-blown kind of remake or reimagining of that film. It's a film, like I said before, has its own complete identity. I will admit, other than the like the initial premise, I knew that this was a film that was for most part set in the 1950s. So that I already had an idea about. But outside of the setting I, and the time it takes place in, I wasn't sure what to expect from this film. And I will admit, though, for about most of it, it, the film actually intrigued me. And I was kind of very curious to see where this film was going to go. Unfortunately, though, by the end of it, it kind of feels like it's only half of a story. It kind of just, by the time it ends, all the things that it kind of sets up in terms of its main plot and as well as its subplots and also the arcs of the characters, they kind of are not really resolved by the end of it. And it also, as it goes along, especially with the central mystery that it's portraying, it does become very convoluted as well. And it also at times feels like it's kind of just going from scene to scene. And another thing I sort of noticed about this film, like you can definitely tell that uh, Thomas J. Churchill, who is the writer director and also has a role in this film as well like he is you can definitely tell like he has a lot of passion for what he is doing with this film and he and this film is clearly made as a love letter to the films of the 1950s and i will give this film a lot of credit because even though this is a, a relatively low budget independent film i did like the fact that he goes out of his way to try to make it feel like the 50s as possible in terms of its uh the costumes the set design like it would have been hard like for a big budget film that's pretty easy to do something like that but with something mm -hmm. i don't know what the budget of this film was but i just i would have a feeling that it was very micro budget but i think he did a good job with how this film on a technical level and production costumes and everything i thought it was handled quite well but yeah i think the main problem with this film is like i said before is the script just has it, it definitely is a film that wants to cover so much with its story but by the end of it though it just doesn't feel very satisfying in how it concludes a lot of its storylines or even even if it concludes any at all because some plot threads are kind of just left dangling and there's no resolution to them at all so yeah like it's an interesting film it's an ambitious film that i give a lot of credit to but unfortunately i feel like this is a film where the sum of the parts are better than the actual whole itself so <laughs> <laughs> well, you but to kind of yeah you definitely took this uh experience a lot differently than i did but you mm. know that's why we're here so that we can exactly. discuss those parts and um but yeah i will i will i will give that i will give this movie that credit as well it does definitely capture the look and feel of the 50s in a lot of different regards when it comes to costume and 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 the set and you know some of the lingo and mm. you know even even a lot of different like shots that were done ex ex you know exponentially well hmm. in really like capturing the aesthetic and the style of that time period and trying to incorporate that into the story 
you know so i I definitely agree with you on that end (laughs) yes (laughs) well we might as well get straight to it and talk about like what is it about what is this film what is it about and and also dive into what we thought worked and didn't work about it so here's our recap of the film pretty much the film starts off with a text over a black background and it's a, a bible verse as well which simply says in those days people will seek death and will not find it they will long to die but death will flee from them so when i saw that opening text i thought okay it's kind of setting up a mood and you could kind of get an idea of what type of tone this film is going to start off with so the film opens up in present day and then we see a woman named uh, marion crane yes th- like the character <laughs> like named after the character from psycho and she's looking out her window and she sees a zombie eating uh, a dead dog and as well as not far from where the dog is is also the body of a man who has also had his guts ripped out and everything so we can pretty much assume within the first scene that this is a world where the world has already been taken over by zombies and then all of a sudden a his her assistant comes up and chats to her and they go upstairs and when they go into a room and then they find that the woman's husband who is played by brian andrews and if that name sounds familiar uh that's because brian andrews actually played the original tommy wallace in the original 1978 version of halloween so oh wow okay yes (laughs) indeed and so he is it is better he is dying and he's being comforted by a priest who is played by Kenneth J. Hall. And through as he's kind of going in and out of consciousness, uh, Brian Andrews' character, who is just simply known as Senior, so we don't really get the character's name in these scenes. And he keeps, well, the priest keeps asking him to, like, if there's anything you wanted to confess, say it now and you'll be absolved of your sins. And so during when he's in and out of his consciousness, uh, Brian Andrews' character just keeps referring to the number 57. At first, the other characters, including his wife, Marion, are very confused about what he's talking about. But then we realize he's actually talking about the year 1957. And then that's when the film transports us back to that year. And mind you, the film starts off in color. And then once we are transported back to 1957, that is when the film reverts to the black and white format. But one little detail I will say about the opening scene, particularly with the character that Brian Andrews plays, is that the only thing we kind of know about him is through his wife, is that uh, when he's, as she's talking to their assistant, is that he was a good man. It was his business that had the issue. So... At first, we're not sure why she would say that, but as the film kind of progresses, we'll find out a little bit more. So we're transported to a motel room in Hollywood, and then we see a woman who is writing out a letter to her husband, Thomas, talking about that she is going to end her life and that she doesn't want him to see her, doesn't want to see her what she will become. And then so as she's doing this, Uh, She puts on a dress. She just looks at her photographs of her and her husband. Uh, She takes rat poison 
And then she throws a plastic bag over her head, ties it up. While she is suffocating inside the bag, she throws up and dies. Now, we don't know who this woman is, but what's interesting, though, is like for most part of this scene, it is done in a black and white. But yet, and this is something that you'll notice very quickly throughout this film, whenever there is a scene that involves uh, gore or violence or even any kind of uh, sexual elements, the film becomes colourful. Once that scene is done, we're transported to another scene where we meet another woman who is just coughing up her lungs and she's sitting there talking to her husband who's behind her. And she keeps accuses him of making her sick, like, and also like where he has been because he has disappeared for a few days. And as this is going on, uh, we find out that her husband is now a zombie and he goes up and bites and rips her nose off. And, <laughs> and which is actually, I will say this again about this film, like the makeup and gore effects in this film are actually pretty impressive. And I thought this nose bite was actually a pretty cool effect on how they did it. And then from once that scene is finished, we're transported to an office where we meet a woman named Bethany and she's going over a list that has names that have been crossed out. And she's looking around the office and she's very teary-eyed. And then we find out the reason why is we go into a flashback. So this is a film that has a flashback within a flashback, but I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> then where we go a little bit earlier in time, as she's working away on the typewriter in this office, her, her fiancé, whose name is George A. Lazarus, and obviously a little bit of a play on George A. Romero's name, he is an insurance investigator, so he comes into the office and they have a little bit of a conversation. He gets a phone call and he answers, and then all of a sudden uh, their assistant, Chip, who also is named Ben, and he is a young Afri African-American man who, who's been friends with them for a while. And obviously having the character named Ben is obviously a reference to, of course, the character of Ben in Night of the Living Dead, but then we find out that he also has an uncle who has the same name as him who lives in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> again, all those little references to Night of the Living Dead are there since, of course, the events of the original film took place in, in Pittsburgh, which, of course, is in Pennsylvania. Uh, from there, uh, once George is finished on the phone, he finds out that he's been called up by a man named Hitchcock, again, uh, obvious <laughs> reference there, who owns a company by the name of Topaz Insurance. Again, very obvious kind of Alfred Hitchcock references <laughs> here. And uh, they ring up and discuss that they are, are filing a claim against employees who have been sabotaging his business. Then they want Lazarus to go look for the 13 people who are making this on the claim because... Pretty much the business, from what I remember, is the company itself may lose about $13 million. So as when they're talking about this, uh, Chip mentions a, mentions a woman who uh, stole $4,000 for her boyfriend's divorce and gets caught and uh, wants to return it. Obviously a reference to Psycho. So there is a lot of Alfred Hitchcock film references <laughs> just in this scene alone. 
But to make it even more blatant, Chip mentions, uh, once he finishes his story, he says, oh, what a psycho. Very obvious. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so from there, uh, George decides to take on the case. So this is pretty much the introduction to this film. And already based on everything I've said, a lot is already going on at the beginning of this film. So Marcus, your thoughts so far on uh, Day of the Living Dead? Well, uh, yeah. As you said, a lot of Hitchcock references right off the bat. I, I swear, I thought someone was going to go, hey, look, I'm going to go look out of this rear window. Hey, do you have any rope? I think I'm over here <laughs> north by northwest. Like, oh, my God. Like, okay. Like, he, oh, just, just wall-to-wall Hitchcock references right off the bat. And, I mean, and you're right. Like, like there's a lot going on in this film, like, right off the bat. We get a, a a present day scene where someone's being eaten by a zombie, and it's very and it's taken very nonchalantly. <laughs> you know, Mrs. Crane is is seeing this zombie, you know, eat the dog and everything like that, and a lot of blood, and she's just like, eh, well, you know, like she gets more annoyed at her maid asking her questions, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> She's literally just like, don't patronize me, you know, and it, it's like this this odd setup where I guess the zombie apocalypse has already kind of happened, mm. and it's it, it's like a, it's a part of everyday life, you know, mm. because no one is concerned about this zombie eating a dog and someone outside. They're just going on about their day as if nothing's happening. You know, then we get Lazarus on his deathbed, confessing to um, the priest, even though, oh, again... Oh, I'll say that. Sorry. I don't think it was Lazarus, uh, Marcus. So. <laughs> oh, oh, who was it? Who was it? Uh, who was That's it? the thing. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, because all it says is that it's a character named Senior, but I have a theory on who it might be, but uh, yeah, but it's definitely not yeah, Lazarus. You're right. We, yeah. Thank you. Because I, I assumed that it was him. <laughs> you know, for most of the film, we're we're kind of following Lazarus around. So I'm thinking that this is, you know, who's telling the story. But of course, another one of the very inconsistent uh, narratives in this in this movie because we don't know who this guy is telling the story. He's telling it from all these different perspectives. So like, how does he know about all the stuff that he wasn't particularly there for? And we don't even know if he was there because we don't know who the hell he is. So <laughs> then we get a flashback within a flashback. And then we get a, a very kind of dark suicide. I mean, not that I'm advocating for suicide at all, listeners out there, but I'm sitting there watching this woman wrap a take rat poison and wrap a, a bag around her head. I'm like, you know, it's the 50s. I'm pretty sure guns exist. Like, why are you going through all that trouble to do all of that? You know, <laughs> which I know, it's, I know it's not a good thing to say, but I couldn't help it. So, you're right. Anytime there's been there is any kind of violence or any kind of uh, a, a sexual content, it goes straight to color. But it, it does it in such a way that's like particularly jarring. Like it, it, it's black and white, then boom, color. But not like accentuated any kind of way like you could tell he uh 
Churchill was probably going from maybe like a kind of a Sin City esque kind of no. you know, execution here, where there's a lot of emphasis on like certain objects and splashes of, of of blood to like really bring out you know the black and white, but that's expensive. So <laughs> you know, instead we just go straight to the whole picture being color and mm. then going back to black and white. Like you said, it, it's intriguing, but th- it got really kind of jarring after a while. And, um, you know, I like that you said that we're transported because that's how a lot of these transitions are. Like we're literally transported from one scene to the next. We don't, so far, we don't even know how any of these are connected yet. Mm. All we know is that, you know, there's violence happening and people are getting, you know, killed, you know, by zombies. And I agree, you know, the 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 nose bite is particularly good. You know, I definitely uh, enjoyed that. And, you know, uh, I was thinking that this is going to be like a lot of just random occurrences, which it is. But then we get these these characters. And I'm sorry, like, I, like I'm looking at uh, George and Bethany and Chip. Benjamin, whatever, like <laughs> I'm just I'm just getting caught up in all the references that they're just throwing at me. Like, okay, like what a psycho. Okay, I guess I'm getting Vertigo over here. Like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, like you're like you're right. It's 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 a lot going on, and we, we haven't even reached like the 15 minute mark yet, you know? Oh so. yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly like a whole bunch of stuff has already happened within the plot and like you say it's within the first 15 minutes of the film so uh from here we follow lazarus as he goes to his favorite diner uh meets hit the otis smitty has a bit of a chat to him and of course not only do we get like film references with alfred hitchcock from the previous scene we also get historical references as well, because in their conversation, they talk about Ed Gein, who in their conversation, uh, Smitty mentions that he had just been recently been captured. And also uh, Jackie Robinson, the baseball player, is talking about his retirement. So that gets a mention from them as well. And also as Lazarus is there, he orders a milkshake. And (laughs) what I literally (laughs) found funny about this scene, in half the time, Lazarus is basically ignoring Smitty as he's just like reading the paper. He gets his milkshake, he drinks one sip of it, and then he just gets up and leaves. (laughs) (laughs) I know that too. And the funny thing is with the scene, I like once it was over, I was like, well, that scene was pointless. Like, why even have the scene in the movie? Is this <laughs> was this scene just created to kind of give some kind of historical references of what was going on around the period at which this film was taking place, which I guess is probably what uh Churchill was going for to kind of give it that 50s feel with the mixture of Uh, having a sports reference with Jackie Robinson, having a real-life serial killer reference with Ed Gein in there, since he would be a real-life serial killer who would inspire Mm -hmm. the film Psycho, and as well as other horror films as well. So I I kind of have a feeling that's probably why those references are there. But that being said, though, the scene doesn't really kind of add anything to the movie. And the fact of the matter is, it just shows like Lazarus just 
wasting a good milkshake with just having one sip and then leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Just them literally just milling around. And you're right. Like, I felt the same way about that scene. I'm like, okay, this doesn't... And there's a lot of scenes in this movie that don't really add anything to the story. But this was definitely one of the big first ones because I'm just like, okay, well... Because you're right, you know, Ed Gein, you know, was pretty much captured and exposed. All of his crimes are exposed around, and I believe in the uh, in 1957. So, mm. you know, of course, people would be talking about that. So I get that part. I get the Jackie Robinson part. It's just it, he could have put this in something different. If anything, he probably could have put it in the first scene, like with mm. uh, George and, and Bethany and and Chip Benjamin. You know, instead of all the Hitchcock references, you know, they could have been talking mm. about that. Like that yeah. would have been more of a a naturalistic conversation given the time period than, you know, the 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 diner and him wasting a perfectly good milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just looking up like the cast list for this movie. Uh the film uh Natalie Victoria plays Bethany, and I just realized that the cast list, her last name is Loomis. Oh my God. What is that? (laughs) Probably, again, more reference to Psycho since there was a character named Sam Loomis in that film. So it's very obviously that is what the reference (laughs) is there for. Or, or, you know, or Halloween, you know, Dr. Loomis. So, yep. Well, that is true. That is very true. So, (laughs) But uh, from here, though, we transported to another scene where we meet a man called Stephen Wells, who's played by Stephen Jeffries. And if that name sounds familiar, he played uh, Evil Ed in the original Fright Night film. Oh, okay. Indeed, indeed. So, yeah, so he has a small role in this film, and we have a scene of him sitting on his chair, he calls the police, he lets them know that he wants to report a murder, and that he killed his wife, again, but then uh, once he finishes, and he tells the cops to get over to his place as soon as possible, so once he hangs up the phone, we find him in the bathroom, and we kind of have a shot of him from the back, and it's very obviously like he's having a shave, but then we realise, when we get to the sink, the, the sink is full of blood. There's a bloodied axe next to it. So, and as he's sort of shaving his face, his wife, who ha- who's dead, comes back to life as a zombie and uh, goes into the bathroom and kills him by grabbing him and smashing his face into the mirror. And he's just has he has shards of glass all over his face. And that he's just killed. And my only uh, question about this scene is, dude, like, you got a mirror in front of you. How did you not see your wife coming up behind you? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. My question about this scene is, what was up with the quick cuts? It's like... Yes. They they slowly built up the scene where she's coming out of the tub, you know, and we get, of course, get our our first naked zombie of, of the movie. Mm-hmm. and she's creeping up and you're right th- that mirror was particularly big so i don't know how he didn't notice her coming up but you know as soon as she gets to him and does that first smash of his face into the mirror 
we we get the the quick cuts and the ultra like shrieky screams and is it is like cut incredibly fast and it's like again another like jarring moment in this movie that did not need to have that i dare say if you would have just had her walk up to him smash his face in the mirror a couple times and just showed that for what it was this scene would have worked a heck of a lot better than it did i don't know it's like it's like churchill likes to really build an anticipation with 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 these scenes but then i don't know maybe his adhd kicks in or something i don't know and he's just like okay well let's do it fast <laughs> so we can get to the next thing and <laughs> i don't know it it it's it, it's wild cuz like i told you uh, earlier um a couple minutes ago like there's a lot of great shots in this movie mm. that really like captures you know like i said the times and everything like that and it definitely has that that noirish quality. Uh, definitely something like, you know, Postman Rings tw- Twice or a hint of Casablanca. You know, just really does the the black and white compositions very well. But then mm. when you have these like strange moments, it just undercuts all of the all of the buildup. So it, it it's it's a strange thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's very, very weird. Like, it's... I can definitely see what Churchill is trying to do. And I guess in a way, by having these scenes in colour kind of shows off the gore effects and as well as how bloody these scenes can be. Because I can imagine, like, shooting this in black and white. And for all I know, they probably wanted to have these scenes in black and white, but then once they kind of saw it... And this is me speculating, by the way that when they saw these scenes in black and white, it probably wasn't as effective as it could have been with the blood and all that, or maybe it was too dark. So basically they had to change it to color for these scenes to work. I mean, that's the only explanation I can uh, think of. But you're right, though, in terms of how these scenes are kind of done and how they're handled and how he's trying to escalate tension. Like the editing is very choppy and a bit all over the place. And it's weird, though, because there, like you say, there are a lot of elements about this film that do work. Like you say, the cinematography is actually really good, especially for a low-budget indie film like this. The use of light and shadow was really cool. And not only did this film, like, visually remind me a lot of 50s films, it also has that feel of the 60s horror films as well, like, obviously, Night of the Living Dead, and as well as something like Carnival of Souls or uh, Dementia 13, oh, you know, yeah. stuff like that. And I think the movie actually does a good job at sort of replicating that black and white style. But like you say, when the color scenes do come in, it does feel very jarring, even though I can totally get what he's going for, for these scenes. But yeah, I, it's sort of like, I think if he did go for a more... Sin City approach by having like blood or certain things like specifically those things in color like in post and everything else in black and white it probably would have worked but having like every scene (laughs) where there's violence (laughs) or sexuality in color it kind of um even though yeah the effects and everything look cool but it's not as effective as it could have been Oh, I hope that's not your mother's blueberry pie that you got tucked in under your arm there. 
<laughs> oh no, uh, I picked this up at the Five and Die. Sure. It's a frisbee. You How play catch with it. Kind of like a baseball, too. but right. it's with the sauce of this bed. Well, why didn't you just buy a baseball? I kind of wanted to see how I like this first. Right. So I can send it to my little cousin for Christmas. Oh dear. Do you really think he's going to enjoy playing with a pie pan? Well, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> I spent all my money on a plane ticket to see the little brat uh, and my namesake, my Uncle Ben. Mm -hmm. okay. I know no rice <laughs> jokes. Okay. I'm sure he's going to love it. I'm going to get out. Okay, thanks. <laughs> hey, morning, Chip. Yeah. All right, so that was Hitchcock over at Topaz Insurance. A company over in Studio City just filed a claim against some of their employees, stating that they had sabotaged his business with some unknown source. So the owner, he wants his claim adjusted, and he wants the policy paid out so it can make up for the downtime. Well, that claim sounds like it's for the birds, Mr. George. <laughs> yeah, well, Topaz agrees. So, they want us to dig, see what we find out. Well, how much is the claim for? Well, Looking at 13 people on the claim from the company, lost wages, estimated $13 million. <sighs> I declare. Well, what company has that type of money to pay out anyway? I don't know. It seems a little out there. Like that woman who, who stole $40,000 to pay for her boyfriend's divorce. And, and, and then she gets called and wants to return it. <laughs> I tell you, people. Jeez. What a psycho. <laughs> Why don't you tell us how you really So we follow Lazarus as he's going to meet a woman by the name of Miss Daniels. And we get another Hitchcock reference as she's talking about her husband. And she references, and I quote, that's the trouble with Harry. <laughs> so, <laughs> which of course references, of course, the trouble with Harry, the uh, Hitchcock mm. film. So pretty much um, they talk about... Uh, the 13 people who have claims against the the cigarette company Deadly Sin, which I will admit is actually a cool name for a cigarette company, <laughs> if I say so myself. However, as during the conversation, Lazarus, who has looked over all the information he has, he feels that these claims are actually legit, but she feels that they're not, and that some of the people who are on that list have disappeared, and also... They all claim to have been sick or roughly around the same time. So she's finding all this rather sus. Like, if I'm not doing the best to try to explain, like, sort of the uh, noirish plot of this film, uh, I apologize for that because sometimes this movie can be a little muddled as well. So, <laughs> so what's well, the conversation? You're, you're being too kind, my friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, once their conversation is done, Lazarus just decides, you know what, I might as well investigate and find out what's going on. So we go to the Deadly Sins company and we're down into on the factory floor. We see two men working. There's one guy who is very sick and he's just coughing and coughing and coughing. And then we have another guy there who is just keeps talking to him and he just comes off very annoying. And I think that's the whole point of this scene. As the other man is coughing violently, uh, the other guy tries to give him something to drink. However, as he, as the coughing man tries to drink, uh, he ends up accidentally spitting 
in the man's face during a coughing fit and the man falls back and gets his arm caught in a machine and his arm gets ripped off and then he's screaming and yelling and then he falls down and dies and the the coughing man he pretty much just collapses and dies as well and <laughs> and then we're transported <laughs> to another scene and I'm going to be using the word transport a lot during the course of this uh, this discussion. Uh, then we see a red-headed woman. Exactly, exactly. We meet a red-headed woman. She's nude at first, and her hair is bright red, and she's putting on lingerie. And this is the character of Lucinda, who is the daughter of, I guess, the major antagonist of this film, but we'll get to him very shortly. And she's in there doing... So doing some BDSM on a guy named Tad and all she's doing is like putting a plastic bag over his face. She's whipping him. And it, it's like, it is what you would expect a BDSM scene to be. And I found it funny that during, as this scene is going on, her mum comes in at some point, nonchalantly seeing that her daughter <laughs> is in a, doing this to <laughs> another man, tells her, oh, your dad wants to see you. And, and she's like, I'll get out of here. I'll get there in a minute. So she goes back and does more whipping and yelling at Tad. And this goes on for quite a while. Like any normal person probably would have cut the scene when the mum would come in. But no, she like goes on for another minute or two with uh, <laughs> whipping uh, Tad. <laughs> then we're introduced to her father, who is an ex gangster who's now a legit businessman who owns the deadly sin cigarette company and he's a man by the name of Maimon Beelzebub and he's actually played by the film's writer and director Thomas J. Churchill and Thomas J. Churchill is clearly having way too much fun in this role trying to channel <laughs> that sort of style of 40, 30s 40s and 50s acting like he's clearly channeling a lot of um uh, Edward G. Robinson into his performance and James Cagney into his character as well. Like that, you dirty ram, you know, that type of acting. <laughs> so he and Lazarus have a conversation and <laughs> and then Lazarus just, and after when the, and, you know, Lazarus is wanting to know more about the claims and everything and about the 30 people who made them. So he gets up and leaves and, uh, yeah, so that is pretty much the end of this scene. And uh, Marcus, your thoughts so far on this section of uh, the film? Okay, now we've reached another issue I have with this movie. And and it's quite a few, but this is definitely a big one. For some odd reason, despite the fact that we're getting all this very like like stern, neo-noirish, black and white, you know, the Maltese Falcon-esque, you know, like scenes and... You know, there's a lot of like slow crawls and, and quiet moments and and everything like that to really like kind of build that, you know, tension and suspense and and everything like that. We're getting these characters that I swear to God, it, it, it's like they, they, they've been put here like from a cartoon. It's like <laughs> it's so wild. First, we get, you know, uh. Uh, Mrs. Daniels, you know, like, do I have your attention now, Mr. Lazarus? You know, <laughs> wait, 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 
where, where did that come from? You know, and then we get the two guys in the in in the room. One of them, uh, Mister, uh, you know, won't stop talking. Yes, who really very much looks like Jim Rash from Community. He kind and, of does. <laughs> and and the coughing man who just continues to cough and. And, 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 you know, if, uh, 1957 Jim Rash just won't shut the hell up. And it, <laughs> we get that whole thing. And then we get this BDSM stuff. It's like, <laughs> it's like, what is going What? I'm sorry. That, that whole BDSM uh, scene was one of the funniest things I've seen all year. And, and that's really <laughs> saying something because I've seen a lot of hilarious stuff this year. Okay. <laughs> Because she's literally just choking him and 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 kicking him and doing cigarette burns and plastic and whipping him and humiliating him, doing the whole like dominance thing, and then she's letting out the funniest moans like eh, <laughs> I never heard, <laughs> and it just goes on forever, and I'm like. Okay, are we just waiting for him to climax? Like, what are we waiting on here? Like, are we going to go through this whole, like, BSM uh, softcore porn thing? Like, what, what is happening? Where, 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 what's, where are the zombies? Like, what's happening? <laughs> and it, it, it's so weird. And then we get Mr. Beelzebub. His name is literally Mr. Beelzebub. And we're and not exaggerating here. Yeah, he when he literally says his own name, his voice goes down. I'm Mr. Beelzebub. Like, what? Like, are, are you just a sleazy, like, like gangster, or are you literally the devil? And you're right. Like, Churchill is having such a good time with this. And and it it's fine, but he goes from like looking like a legitimate like villain. Uh, antagonist for this movie and literally turns into like 50s kingpin it, it's so freaking weird and the extreme close-ups on his head like okay we, we look i have a dome okay i have a bald head you know so you know so I, do I you know the the, the bald, <laughs> yeah you know the, the you know us bald bros gotta be represented but i don't need to see the, the all the different shapes and dimples and, and reflections off of his head while he talks like it's like it's like he put the camera like right on top of his head at some point so, and you're right like i know again what churchill's trying to go for it, it it's just it's just too much especially when we've already established this is supposed to be more of a of like a low a low tensive kind of film you know mm. with only like bursts of like violence and stuff but you, you you add these comic book characters in here and then that's exactly what it kind of turns into and, and you're right like uh, churchill's like <laughs> okay i'm we got to keep going but yeah <laughs> yes this is wild <laughs> but and it only just gets wild from here i'll say that uh so basically <laughs> In the previous scene, just after when George leaves, we dissolve and back to the future where uh, Bethany and Chip are actually in the office chatting to uh, Beelzebub and his daughter Lucinda about the whereabouts of Lazarus. And that's kind of the thing 
at least one of my big issues for this film is that this film has a non-linear structure because we go back and forth between Lazarus kind of investigating these people who are making uh, this claim against the Deadly Sins Company. But then, of course, we have Bethany and Chip also doing their own investigation about what happened to Lazarus. So, And it actually is kind of confusing for a while when it goes back and forth, because usually a film would kind of, you know, make it easy for us as an audience to, to kind of show that these are two obvious different points in time. But the thing is, since they're kind of shot very similarly, and also when they do cut to the past and the present, there's not really that many dissolved scenes or anything like that. So it kind of just feels very confusing having these two plot lines happen at the same time and going back and forth between it. Because at times I was confused, like, is this scene in the future or is this scene in the past? I'm not exactly sure. So, <laughs> so after when that scene is done, we go back to those two dead guys or the two dead workers from earlier and a guy by the name of McMahon comes in, tells uh, Beelzebub and Lucinda about what's happening. They need to get down to the work floor to see what's happened. And they go down there. Beelzebub and Lucinda see the dead bodies. He tells McMahon he tells Big Man to clean up this place and he makes this big speech about his investment and about his job and everything. So obviously the scene is meant to make him seem like an uncaring type of boss who, because, you know, as I said before, he's an ex-gangster. So his gangster side is coming out in the scene about get rid of the bodies. We don't want our reputation for this company to be ruined. If you don't do a good job, McMahon, I will <laughs> shoot you myself. So you can very clear, like, again, he's trying to be, like, the ultimate villain. And then we cut to uh, Bethany and Chip, who are in a diner, and they're just having a random conversation. And, of course, uh, Chip brings up his Uncle Ben once again. And they also talk about the Civil War reenactments and how in some of the southern states, like, they still do them, even though Chip is confused, like, why the southern states would want to do reenactments when they lost the Civil War. And then, of course, uh, a waiter comes up to him and tells Chip, uh, you know, he, you can't sit there. You need to go sit on the other side of the room, which, of course, is the sort of the segregated area. Bethany comes in Chip's defense and tell, tells the waiter, no, he's staying here. He's not going anywhere. You can basically piss off. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but you kind of get the idea. And uh, Chip says, um, thank you to Bethany for that. And so the two of them could go over the list of names that Lazarus has, and they decide to retrace Lazarus' steps by trying to find the uh, the thirteen people, the thirteen workers. We go back to the past, <laughs> and we see uh, George <laughs> arriving at a house, and it is the house belonging to a man by the name of Howard Kane. Sort of looks around trying to find them, so he goes inside, and then Howard's wife comes up behind. Lazarus with a shotgun and it's very obviously like given how small it is it looks like a toy shotgun that they obviously had to paint to <laughs> make it look uh, <laughs> as realistic as possible and uh, they have a conversation and she's there just smoking her cigarettes and everything and she tells him that Howard's probably out the back working on his car Lazarus goes outside 
he finds Howard, who's obvious, who is working on the car, but then he sees uh, Howard is very sick and he actually has a lot of boils all over his face. Lazarus tries to get some information out of Howard, but there's not much he can give, but he suggests to Howard to go find a man by the name of Roger Abel. Now, Roger isn't actually on the list that Lazarus was given, but Howard pretty much just tells him, like, yeah, he wouldn't be on the list, but he has a lot more information about what is going on since he also worked as an employee at the company. And also, uh, Howard also says, like, you'll get you'll get some good information from him because Roger loves to talk. So Lazarus leaves, and then we're transported once again to a scene where we see Howard in his car. He's sitting there, uh, looking up to the sky, saying sorry to God that he, for the sins he has committed, and he decides to kill himself by uh, blocking up the exhaust pipe, the exhaust go through the car and suffocate him. Now, we're transported into the future where Bethany and Chip go to Howard's house and they walk past Howard's car and Howard is very much alive, peering out at them, but I can only assume that he's a zombie now. So, (laughs) but the question is though, I don't know. My question is though, how long has he been dead in that car for? Um, (laughs) And how did his... So, Bethany and Chip... They go inside the house. It's completely dark. The lights aren't working. They call out to Howard and also his wife, Eve. Uh, Chips has a video camera that he's using to film everything that's going on. I'm not sure why, but he is. And and of course, like uh, during a specific moment, like there's a lot of movie references that brought up. Like Chip kind of feels like how dark this house is is kind of reminds him of a Vincent Price movie. And also uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of gets uh, referenced as well. However, the lights automatically come on. Both Bethany and Chip scream, and they see that Eve is now a zombie, and she bites Chip on the arm. Both Chip and Bethany run out of the house, They try to figure out exactly what's going on just as Eve is coming out of the house in full-blown zombie form. And yeah, they run off into the night. And then then we're transported back to the past where we see Lazarus (laughs) go to a bar and he goes up to the barman and asks if uh, Roger is there. So he's just sitting there checking out the atmosphere of the place and there's a woman up there singing. And I got to admit, I actually really like this little scene because it does really kind of have that vibe of, again, as we sort of stated before, the feel of a 50s film. So, and especially the noir film. So I kind of liked, at least on a technical level, on how this scene was done. So the barman tells me that Roger is out the back. Lazarus goes out there. It's a bit dark out there. And then he stumbles across Roger Abel and we discovered that Roger is uh, played by James Duvall, who clearly has seen better days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so they have a bit of a conversation. And then we discovered that Roger also, like Howard, is starting to develop boils 
on his face. And uh, he kind of gets a little paranoid because he feels that they're being watched. Uh, and Lazarus asks, by who? He's, and Roger says, uh, the dead folks. And Roger is coughing as well. And Roger tells Lazarus to beat him as his, beat him at his wife's shop later. And he'll give him some more information about what is going on. Once again, so much is happening in this film. And uh, Marcus, your thoughts so far on this film? Well, once again, you know, I, did you notice that you said Back to the Future? Because you made a reference to my friend. <laughs> I did. <Yes>. I did. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. There, again, it, it just bounces around from timeline to timeline, era to era, uh, time period to time period. All these different like scenarios that don't connect and then some that do it's so odd and oh and also thanks to this movie i now know another derogatory term for black people because beelzebub decides to call uh chip benjamin a sambo so thanks a lot 1950s uh society (laughs) jeez (laughs) but you know if you're if you're Irish or uh, have you actually, I, I read it. I, I looked it up because uh, Irish or Australian Sambo means sandwich for, uh, to that too. Have you ever heard that term before? <laughs> uh, not in my travels as of late, maybe like earlier years ago, maybe, but I've not actually have heard that term. At least not that recently I should add. Yeah. So it's I'm like, okay, well, and then we get these weird like anachronisms because I'm telling you when, George, when when George gets to Howard's house and his wife pulls that shotgun on him, it, I mean I'm not an expert, but that's but that looked like a Winchester 12 model, but the barrel was too short and the handle mm. was too short and it was curved. So I'm like, okay, this, this is that didn't even doesn't even look like a 50s weapon, you know. So mm. it, 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 <laughs> and I know I spent <laughs> I focused on that way too much. But I couldn't help it, you know, because I was like, that does not look like a 50s gun, you know, but okay. And then when we get and then when we get to Howard, this is another issue I kind of had with, with this movie, because we get those, you know, particularly, uh, you know, jarring, you know, transitions between black and white and color when we get some violence. But then when we see Howard, who has all those boils on the on his face, that actually looked really good. You know, so it really kind of got me thinking like they could have they could have left everything black and white. And I felt like it would have still I feel like it still would have been very much effective without all the quick cuts and transitions, because when we see Howard and um, what what guy, what, what was the other guy's name? Oh, uh, <laughs> Roger. Uh, yeah, Roger. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, of course, you know, we get a Kane and Abel reference because, you know, Howard Kane and, you know, Roger Abel. Oh, um, oh, I, I see what you did there. I, I see what you did there, Thomas J. Churchill. It didn't even occur to me. So, <laughs> yeah, like we, we see them both with these boils and everything and they look really good. So you could have I feel like Churchill really could have left everything black and white. And it and it and all the you know the the um uh the makeup and effects and everything I feel like it still would have tra- it translated well 
but I, I, maybe he just didn't have as much faith in it as mm. he probably should have. So it was very unfortunate to kind of see that because, uh, you know, like you, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm paying attention to the story, but it's bouncing around so freaking much, and and we're still getting scenes that don't really make any sense. So I'm like, okay, you know, so <laughs> like, what, like, what is it with the uh, people committing suicide in this movie? Like, we had like what three of them? Like three suicides? I guess the only thing I can think of is like they probably know that they're going to be turning into zombies very soon based on, you know, the boils and everything like that. So they decide to, I guess, end their lives that way. Or at least, like, maybe they... Well, if they don't know that they're going to become the living dead, the only thing I can think of is, like, whatever this uh, sickness that they have is obviously mutating them, and they can't deal Mm -hmm. with looking the way that they are. So they basically decide to kill themselves and that would explain like where um they go like lazarus george a lazarus actually now that i think about it now before is there is a lot of biblical references in this film because lazarus of course was uh in the bible was the man that jesus brought back from the dead so that's an obvious reference there beelzebub of course the other name for the uh for lucifer and of course, you like you say, you got Cain and Abel as the last names of, of two characters. But also, Howard's wife is named Eve, who is the mother of uh, Cain and Abel. Churchill just is throwing every kind of reference he can. He got we, we got the biblical, we got the the we got movies, we got comics, we got um, Hitchcock movies. We we got it all in this. We got every yeah. reference. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> and I guess that's back to what I, my point before. I guess maybe that's probably the reason why some of the uh, the characters are committing suicide because we got to remember it is referenced that the car- these 13 people, most of them have disappeared. So I'm assuming most of them have either killed themselves due to whatever sickness they've had I guess the question is, though, like, do they know that they're going to become a zombie and hence why they're going to kill themselves? Or is it the sickness so bad that they can't deal with it that they have to uh, end their lives so that they don't live with the pain of this sickness? So I guess, that yeah, that's the kind of the interesting thing about this film. But again, one of the main problems with the film is like, Thomas J. Churchill is obviously wants to explore many different ideas and themes within the story, but it doesn't sort of end on a very satisfying note. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I can, I can think of one Avenue that he probably could have taken that he didn't take is that another, like, as you said, you know, they don't know if they're going to become zombies, but they can't live with what they're what they're looking like, which is very much in keeping with the times. Because hmm. you know, in the fifties, it was a lot about image and looks and how everyone is supposed to look the exact same, be the exact same, have the exact the exact same types of uh, uh, of jobs of um of religions and and everything like that and anything viewed upon as quote-unquote different was met with 
you know, hatred and ignorance and, you know, people being ostracized and, and even hurt and, and killed because they didn't fit, you know, uh, society's norms or even, you know what, America's norms. So mm. that definitely could have been in keeping with a lot of these people committing suicide because they didn't look good. <laughs> they didn't look particularly healthy. They didn't even look very human. So, mm. but that wasn't really explored in any kind of way. It was just kind of there mm. with no kind of like context or anything. I mean, and the only reason why I'm pointing that out is because Churchill still, you know, brings out the, of course, you know, segregation, yeah. you know, and, you know, the, the Civil War and, you know, uh, Bethany coming to Chip Benjamin's defense, you know, I hate bigots, you know, and, and stuff like that. So if we're going to be doing a kind of an examination of the times, you know, incorporating this into the zombie movie, then, you know, that should have been kind of in there, too. I mean, I, I kind of feel like and even. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like the fact that he's putting so many references in here <laughs> really just kind of chips away from like the original ideas that he most likely would have explored if he wasn't so focused on that part of it. Hmm. But, you know, that's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I can definitely understand that for sure, because again, I guess he's tried to try to paint this film like painting like as an audience watching this film trying to paint the picture of what the 50s were like what was going on at this time in terms of its social political climate yeah i guess he's tried to tackle a lot of things kind of similar to what george a romero himself would do with a lot of his dead films but i feel like he gets so caught up with these elements that he forgets to kind of tell a very focused story. Roger. Roger Abel. Yeah, that's me. The boy, no, Kane did say you're a pretty hard guy to track down. Yeah. I like it that way. They will have difficulties. And who are you, friend? Lazarus. I'm George A. Lazarus. I'm an insurance investigator. I work with Topaz Insurance. A bit late to be going door to door selling insurance, Mr. Lazarus. Uh, you know, I'm sure my fiance is worried. No, I'm not out selling, Roger. I'm investigating a claim from Deadly Sin Cigarettes. You know, hey man, it's a, it's a, it's a bit dark in here. You think we get some lights on in here? I mean, a fella could definitely lose a step. No. They will be watching us. If they can't see you, they'll miss you. They'll be watching. <coughs> they'll be watching. dead folks but from here though uh we follow uh george Laz george a lazarus as he arrives at uh roger's wife's shop and uh we see that roger is inside and he's coughing and he's looking around for his wife emma and then 
George walks in and he sees Roger getting stabbed in the throat by a pair of scissors by a woman whose face we can't see. He assumes that it is Roger's wife, Emma. And he says, oh my gosh, we need to call the police. And then, of course, we find out that it's not actually Emma. It's actually Beelzebub's daughter, Lucinda, in disguise. (laughs) And then uh, (laughs) as Lucinda and Lazarus are talking, that is when uh, behind Lucinda, Roger gets up and he has now become a zombie. Then as this is going on, Lucinda slashes... Lazarus in the face with the scissors and then from behind that's when Roger grabs her and they are like and they get into a struggle she keeps trying to stab Roger in the throat multiple times and they just fall on each other and die <laughs> and I'm like how do, how do we sit the die like I, I'm confused um I mean, she didn't get bit or anything like that. So all she did was just stab Roger in the throat multiple times until he died. And did he, did she just die because he collapsed right on top of her? So that I was a little bit confused by. So Lazarus is on the floor, startled by the whole situation. And as he gets up, he looks over and then he sees Roger's wife, Emma, who is also now a zombie crawling towards him it actually is quite a startling scene when we see it because i don't know why but is it just me marcus or when she was crawling towards him it almost like her body was very contorted like her legs were like over her head and everything like that so as he's looking at her she grabs him and attacks and kills lazarus and (laughs) i will say uh lazarus's (laughs) Facial expressions. Uh, the actor who plays him, of course, being uh, Ray Caparana. And again, if I butchered your last name, please forgive me. Like, his facial expressions in this scene are pretty hilarious as he's seeing all this <laughs> madness kind of happen. And also when he's, like, screaming, like, oh, we need to call the police and call the police. Like, uh, his performance is uh, not good <laughs> as he's freaking out. But, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it seems like he's just he, he's having a like, I get it. Like, he they they want, I believe Churchill kind of wanted to give him like almost like a deranged, like freaking out, like breakdown yeah. kind of quality. But mm. the, the unfortunately, the actor's delivery, oh, like it, 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 it sounded like freaking Don Knotts. So, I'm like, <laughs> 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 It just didn't really work considering what was going And you're right. Like, how, wait, it's like he walked into, you know what it felt like? This, it, it almost felt like he was kind of breaking the fourth wall. He was walking into a scene of a movie where people are dying or becoming zombies, and he has no idea what the heck is going on because he's us. Because we don't know what the heck is going on, you know. Because there was <laughs> there was no build up or lead up to any of this. Maybe Churchill wanted to like subvert expectations, but there were no expectations to subvert. Like it, it just, it, it just kind of all just happens. And 
and and and in not a very impactful way because everyone kind of dies in this scene, almost everyone, and we have no idea how it happened. <laughs> like it's so weird. Like I, I don't know. Like, and then it's brought on by, you know, uh, Lazarus is you know, ghost of Mister Chicken like performance. Oh, duh, duh, duh. like oh, okay, like what? <laughs> What is happening? <laughs> so yes, I definitely agree with you. It did. What is what? <laughs> what is going on? Um, <laughs> but then uh, we we're transported to another random scene where we see uh, two teenagers who are obviously not teenagers. These are thirty-year-olds pretending to be teenagers. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, and they're wandering around. I guess this. It's hard to describe the layout of this scene, like, or even just like the production design. I guess they're at some kind of carnival or some haunted house or something like that. So that's what it kind of looked like. So they go there, they go inside, and that he sets up a towel and they have a conversation. And she asks him, like, oh, is this the place where supposedly some alien abductions happened? He goes into a spiel with some conspiracy theories. And he's all dressed up like in the sort of 50s kind of greaser kind of look. As they're sort of uh, sitting there having a conversation, uh, some music is playing somewhere in the building. So they both decide to go and investigate. Like he feels like, oh, maybe we should just, you know, get out of here and that. But she feels like there's someone there and we should go freak him out to get him out of the, out of the building. But if not, we'll leave. She goes into a room and then I guess like a hammer gets smacked in her face. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> he goes into the room, finds her dead. He starts to freak out. And as he's about to go, a man comes smashing through the wall next to him. And it is a zombie carrying a sledgehammer. And I will admit this was actually a pretty cool effect. The zombie hits him over the head with the sledgehammer and blood just gushes everywhere. The uh the greaser guy, he falls <laughs> to the ground, and the zombie drops the sledgehammer and just goes to town on his braids. And uh, then a little bit later, the zombie goes up to a record player and take takes the needle off the, the record. Um <laughs> so zombies in this world can actually uh play music. Um <laughs> okay. Okay, so what, again, like we just said, what the hell is going on? And then we get this scene. Even more what the hell here is going on her. Like, uh, what what is this, like Land of the Dead all of a sudden? Is, is that Big Daddy? Like, like, nothing has been established that these zombies can use weapons. And we get, you know what this was? This was a deleted scene that Churchill decided to just put in the movie very randomly. Mm. <laughs> because he probably thought that he was just going to take this completely out. Zero sense to the story. But he's like, you know what? This effect was so good. I don't want to scrap it. So I'm just going to put it in anyway. And you're right. It's a great effect. When <laughs> the head <laughs> gets smashed by the... <laughs> by the hammer and the sledgehammer and everything like that great effect very gushy very almost evil deady dead alive-ish you know 
I liked it. I really did. But it it it's in the wrong movie. Like this was in the wrong movie. Like what is again? Who are these people? Where were they? Where did the zombie come from? Where did the sledgehammer come from? How do you turn on the music? Why is there music? <laughs> <laughs> I think my head is about to crack open. <laughs> <laughs> we get transported back to the office where we see Bethany alone at her desk and she's crying. She. This is kind of very similar to the scene we saw earlier in the film where she's going over the names, then she's looking at a photo of her and Lazarus, and then she looks over to the these stack of dominoes that uh, Lazarus owned, and they kind of make a reference to it as well earlier in the film. And then we cut to Lazarus, now become, he has now become a zombie, and then we just go smash cut to his face, and then, <laughs> and then the movie cuts the credits. But however, the movie's not quite over just yet. Then we're treated to another random scene where uh, Sarah French, who has been in a lot of B-horror films in the past, shows up as Marilyn Monroe and is on the phone, who we assume is Billy Wilder. And they're having a conversation about a script that he just sent her, and then we soon realize that the script in question is the film Sub Like It Hot. And they're just sort of having a chat between themselves, and we also get some more references to future um, projects that Marilyn is going to be working on, including The Misfits, and also references to her personal life with one of her ex-husbands. And th this scene just, like, comes out of nowhere and is just there... And um, <laughs> and then uh, we then we uh, cut back to the very beginning of the film, back to the present day, with uh, the old man talking to the priest, and then with the, his wife Mar Marion looking out the window, and that is it. That is the end of the film. Uh, Day of the Living Dead. And uh, Marcus, your thoughts on this final section of the film? It's like Churchill just said, you know what? I I'm done filming. I don't want to film anymore. Uh, let let's just let's just cut this. We're done. And and then just ended it. We have absolutely no closure towards anything. Like, huh? Like okay, okay, okay. My head's cracking. My head's cracking. Let me, let me, let me put it back together for a minute. Okay, I gotta, <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta form these thoughts for you here and the lovely people listening at home, because they may think that we're exaggerating on this, and I and trust me, listeners, we are not. This movie literally just ends, like. Mm -hmm. No country for for old men had better closure. Like like what? Like oh okay. I need to set up a flare. Somebody help me. Like because I I don't know what happened there. It, it it like I said, it's like he just decided. You know what? I'm going to end the movie here. We don't get any kind of resolution with 
um, Bethany, we don't get any kind of resolution towards this apocalypse that's supposed to be happening. I mean, I guess you can kind of kind of fill in the blanks a little bit and just say it happened. And then in present day, it's just a regular occurrence now, but nothing to convey that no kind of transition, no kind of explanation, no, no, no words, you know, not even a biblical quote at the end, just nothing, just them going back to the present. The, the 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 random guy who's talking about all this to the priest who we still don't know who he is is telling him this story and and then the Marion Crane but not Janet Lee is looking outside still see looking at the zombie eating and then we get this Marilyn Monroe scene and it's like wait are they are they setting up a sequel or uh, is this a deleted? Is this another deleted scene from Blonde? I mean, did freaking uh, Andrew Dominic direct this part? Like, what? Why is Marilyn Monroe here? Like, what? What is? What is the reason? It, huh? <laughs> I I I don't know what the blue hell is happening. Because I, I, we don't know. You, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'm I'm losing it. So you you go you, you go, my friend. Because I I don't know. What, 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 you, you tell me. <laughs> well, my this is my thoughts on the ending and how this film kind of wraps itself up. Is the, like I think the ending pretty much sums up the entirety of the film, where Thomas J. Churchill definitely had a lot of things on his mind when he wanted to make this film. He wanted to have it be a homage to the horror films that he loved. Not just uh, Night of the Living Dead, because even though, yes, there are some vague references in this film, but, you know, there's a lot of references to Alfred Hitchcock's work and also Hollywood to classic noirs as well. And, of course, of horror films, too, and also he wanted to have historical references in there and have this film feel like it could have been made in the 50s. You know, have a mixture of different genres, not just horror, but also having that sort of crime noir feel as well. Kind of having a topical story there because I'm assuming, and the reason why I believe... Uh, the zombies are being created in this film is because of the cigarettes from the company Deadly Sins because that is probably the only connection I have with why I think is starting this zombie outbreak and why people are getting sick because we saw Eve, you know, Howard's wife smoking a lot of cigarettes and we even get a shot like having like a sink full with a lot of uh, burnt buds and everything and then, of course, she becomes a zombie. So that is probably why all of this is happening. And also, like, making a zombie film that is kind of a precursor to an upcoming apocalypse, and then the present scenes being this, uh, I guess, the everyday life that we live with in a zombie-filled world. And also having some love letter elements to... Uh, old Hollywood by having this Marilyn Monroe scene in it. It is just random 
and bizarre, just unsatisfying, to be honest. I will give this film credit for one thing, and I guess this will kind of go into my final thoughts overall in the film, is that it is an interesting film. I wasn't bored by this film. I was actually quite fascinated for most part. And I will admit at first the film actually had me hooked because I was very curious to see where um, that would come next with the story. But yeah, it just seems like in within the 90 minutes that Thomas J. Churchill has with this film, like he wants to tackle a lot of things within it, but unfortunately the execution of it just doesn't really work. At least on a script level. Like I think some there are some decent performances in here. There are some other performances that don't quite work. But I think even on a technical level, the fact that he tried to make a film that felt as close to 50s, 60s films as possible, like I got to give him credit for that because it at times the film felt very authentic to me. And there was some uh, cinematography that did remind me a lot of films from that period. But like I said, even the 60s period, like Night of the Living Dead, which obviously would have been a main inspiration of having a zombie film in black and white. And also the gore and makeup effects are actually pretty solid. Yeah, I just feel like, he. I think he just bit off way more than he chewed. Like, I feel like he just kind of overstuffed the story with so many different plot threads, so many characters, so many ideas and so many kind of references to other films and historical elements that he kind of lost sight of what the story could have been. And also just not wrapping it up in a way that for us as an audience are satisfied by the end. Cause you know, we've already said before, like there are a lot of plot elements that are basically either skimmed over or barely touched upon. Like remember Chip got bitten by a zombie and we never see that character again after when he and Bethany leave so we don't know what happens to him I guess in the end the, the film just even though yeah it has a lot of qualities that are interesting and unique and I got to give it props for being as ambitious of a film as it is but maybe uh the director behind films such as uh Amityville Moon, Amityville Harvest, um <laughs> kind of maybe um like I said before, bit off more than he could chew. But uh so Marcus, your I guess your final thoughts overall on uh the day of the living dead. You know what, my friend? You are slightly confused. I am about to throw myself down a well. Because I, for for the life of me, I don't understand what this movie is supposed to be. I mean, you're right, and we and, and we discussed that, you know, extensively. This is a very, very solid shot executed film when it comes to, you know, capturing the '50s and. And 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 the, and the black and white and, and and all of that, you know, it it works impeccably when it comes to this story. A lot more than even I initially thought before we started talking about this in the beginning of the podcast. You know, it um because the more we reflected on it, the more I realized just how much of it really, really worked. If Churchill would have just stayed in that region if he would have stayed in that consistency 
if he would have stayed in that idea, I feel like we could have really had something special on our hands, you know? Mm. Because it would have really captured a lot of what made the original the legendary piece of cinema that it is. It would have been a lovely companion piece to it. It, it really would have. And we would be celebrating it even more for its ambition, even more for what it was able to accomplish on an indie budget. But unfortunately, we're not talking about that at all. Because everything else, from the wacky characters to the jarring transitions, you, you know, you got you you hit the nail right on the head. We were transported from scene to scene. We were teleported from scene to scene with no discernible, you know, normality or commonality or co or co you know coherency. It, we were literally just we were in a dryer, just rocking all around with all these different ideas and all these different executions and all these different references. I mean, the references. I mean, it, we didn't stop until the cycle was over, and <laughs> and by the and by the time it was over, we were just completely dried out. <laughs> That's what we were. We were dried out. I can't for a second think of what, like, I commend you for looking at what you believe that Churchill was trying to accomplish. And even I, you know, we were both like reflecting on it and thinking about it, but it doesn't really matter what he was trying to accomplish because he failed, because he was trying to do way too much all at once with no kind of structure or competency or anything of the slightest. He was just throwing stuff at us, like, to the point where we were confused. <laughs> like, we were seriously confused. I'm still confused. We were talking about this movie for a while. I'm still confused. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? I, I I will give it this. I will give it this. It does a great job of subverting whatever expectations you may or may not have. <laughs> it does a great job of really keeping you on your feet because you, you don't know what the heck is going on or what the heck's going to happen from minute one to minute 40 to minute 102. It, it kept that consistency. I'll say that. It, it kept that eccentric personality so yeah i'll give it that but as far as being like a legitimate film a legitimate story that completely captures the times or incorporates a, 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 a an intense or um just driven you know zombie story or just something that gives us something a little bit different in its execution while still having that same spirit as the original, this does not work. It, it, I don't think it ever will. And it's such a shame because like you said, like I said, there was a lot of good stuff here. It just fell 
so flat. <laughs> so very flat. <laughs> it got mm. hit in the hell with a sledgehammer. Mm. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, like I said, I, I give it a lot of props for being ambitious, especially for a low-budget indie film like this. So unfortunately, it just the execution of it just didn't quite work at all in the end. But uh, Marcus, I'm about to blow your mind with two bits of information. Uh, <laughs> did you know that uh, this film is actually a re-edit of a different cut of the film? Really? Yes. Uh, this film, of course, the original title of the film was Lazarus Apocalypse, but which came out in 2014. But then, of course, uh, Thomas J. Churchill came back to the film later on, reworked it, and uh, gave it the new title of the Day of the Living Dead. But what I find funny, though, is if you look up the poster for this film, the things that are on the poster are not in the actual film. It's got a woman, like, in, like, rocked out in battle gear, ready to fight zombies, and this is clearly not what that film <laughs> is. So that is why if you go looking up, like, information on this film, you'll notice that it's, like, has two separate dates because it has... 2014, which it did come out in, or at least the first cut of that film. But then, of course, when this this newer cut came out in 2020. So sometimes, depending on the website and where you're looking up information on this film, it goes back and forth between the two years. And even on Letterboxd, kind of just gave up and just put both listings for both cuts of the film. But I think uh, the more readily available version of this film that most people will see is this version, which of course is the Day of the Living Dead cut. But also, I've sort of like looking up before to find out any information on why Marilyn Monroe, played by Sarah French, is in this film. It's because this scene was meant to kind of uh, organize a, uh, a spin-off film called Marilyn Zombie Hunter. Oh my God. <laughs> which uh at the moment it's currently in development so i don't know if it has been filmed no. or not but it's definitely in <laughs> development from uh writer director uh thomas j churchill with sarah french coming back to reprise her role as marilyn monroe as a zombie hunter <laughs> well i'm sure i'm sure her and um Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter will have a lot to talk about. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> but uh, yes, but I guess that could be a wrap on the, this discussion of the Day of the Living Dead. And uh, once again, Marcus, thanks for coming back on the show and talking about this film with me. And once again, I apologize for subjecting you <laughs> to uh, any of the films. Day on the show <laughs> <laughs> it's okay uh you know what as as much as you know my my brain is leaking out of my ear as we speak it is always fun to you know come on this wonderful podcast you have and discuss these films with you and just have a blast doing it so once again thank you for having me on for my eighth consecutive time Oh yeah, I can't. I can't wait to come back for my ninth and my tenth and beyond. <laughs> definitely, definitely, and uh, yeah. Well, I guess uh, before we wrap up the show, uh, Marcus, where can people find you on the internet this week? 
Well, you can find me on Facebook, you know, Marcus Wilter or Letterbox, same thing. Or you can find me on Twitter or um, Instagram with uh, Ego Critic Demise. Or you can find me on here because, you know, I'm coming back. Or yes. <laughs> you can find me on the Super Network with you, my good, terrible Ozzy and Marcy Darcy. Definitely, definitely. And uh, if people want to find me personally, you can find me on my Twitter page at twitter.com slash bejamine. And you can also find me on let on letterbox as well under bejamine, and as well as blue sky under bejamine. And of course, you can find all my work and all the other podcasts that I co-host with Super Marcy over at supermarcy.com via the Super Network on all podcast streaming services everywhere. In terms of social media for this show, you can find everything Bede versus the Living Dead, and as well as its spinoff, Bede and Steve versus Care Crystal Lake, on social media via Twitter at twitter.com slash BedeVSTLD. You can also find that on Blue Sky under BedeVSTLD. And you can also find the podcast on Facebook by just typing in Bede versus the Living Dead, and you'll find the official Facebook page for it. And as well as you can listen to this podcast on all podcast streaming services everywhere. And like I said before, if you leave a rating and review, I will make sure to read your review on the show in a future episode. And that is the end of this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. I hope you guys all enjoyed this one. And keep a lookout very soon in two weeks' time on New Year's Eve, in which I give my final episode of the year which of course i go into the comic realm when it comes to night of the living dead in which i will discuss the comic books night of the living dead london and night of the living dead barbara zombie chronicles so so stay tuned for that one everyone and also once again uh merry christmas and happy holidays to everyone who celebrates any of the holidays over this festive season and i hope you all have a safe and happy one as well I'll see you all in two weeks' time, everyone. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beat vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.